Section 29 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 29. Louis the Ninth leads the Last Crusade, A.D. 1270, by Joseph Francois Michaud. Louis the Ninth, King of France, 1226 to 1270, was at once a monarch of great ability and a man of intense religious spirit. Naturally, in such a time as that of his reign, a man like Louis would be a crusader. His first expedition, called the Seventh Crusade, 1248 to 1254, was directed against Egypt. He captured Damietta in 1249 and pushed into the interior, but was defeated by the Egyptian sultan and taken prisoner with his entire army. He was liberated on the surrender of Damietta and the payment of a large ransom, and in 1254 he returned to France. The state of Europe, meanwhile, had become unfavorable to further prosecution of the Crusades, and Louis was the only monarch who longer took a serious interest in the fate of the Christian colonies of Asia. He also wished to avenge the honor of the French arms in Egypt, and so at length he planned a new expedition against the Moslems in that country. But he long kept this purpose a secret between God and himself. Louis consulted Pope Clement IV, who at first tried to discourage the perilous enterprise, but finally the pontiff gave his approval, and while admitting no others as yet into his designs, Louis quietly made preparation and awaited the favorable hour. At last, the great Parliament of France being assembled in the Hall of the Louvre, the king entered, bearing in his hand the crown of thorns of Christ. At sight of this, the whole assembly became aware of the monarch's intentions, which he now fully made known, exhorting all who heard him to take the cross. A sad surprise fell upon the reluctant Parliament, but Louis was strongly seconded by the Pope's legate, and many of the prelates, nobles, and knights received the cross. Notwithstanding the deep regret which spread among his people, who felt the need of their sovereign's presence for keeping peace and order in the kingdom, and also feared for his own safety, his health being greatly impaired, there was profound respect for the motives of Louis and general acquiescence in his determination. Among many, this resignation gave place to zealous devotion, and the warlike nobility of the kingdom only thought of following their king in an expedition which was already looked upon as unfortunate. Final preparations were accordingly made for Louis's undertaking. While all France was engaged in preparing for the expedition beyond the seas, the crusade was preached in the other countries of Europe. A council was held at Northampton, in England, in which Audubon, the Pope's legate, exhorted the faithful to arm themselves to save the little that remained of the kingdom of Jerusalem. And Prince Edward took the cross to discharge the vow that his father, Henry III, had made when the news reached Europe of the captivity of Louis IX in Egypt. After the example of Edward, his brother, Prince Edmund, with the earls of Pembroke and Warwick, and many knights and barons, agreed to take arms against the infidels. The same zeal for the deliverance of the holy places was manifested in Scotland, when John Balliol and several nobles enrolled themselves under the banners of the cross. Catalonia and Castile furnished a great number of crusaders. The king of Portugal and James, king of Aragon, took the cross. Dona Sancha, one of the daughters of the Aragonese prince, 
had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and had died in the hospital of St. John. After devoting many years to the service of pilgrims and the sick, James had several times conquered the Moors, but neither his exploits against the infidels nor the remembrance of a daughter who had fallen a martyr to Christian charity could sustain his piety against the attacks of his earthly passions, and his shameful connection with Berengaria scandalized Christendom. The Pope, to whom he communicated his design of going to the Holy Land, replied that Jesus Christ could not accept the services of a prince who crucified him every day by his sins. The king of Aragon, by a strange combination of opposite sentiments, would neither renounce Berengaria nor give up his project of going to fight against the infidels in the east. He renewed his oath in a great assembly at Toledo, at which the ambassadors of the Khan of Tartary and of the king of Armenia were present. We read in a Spanish dissertation upon the Crusades that Alfonso the Wise, who was not able to go to the east himself, furnished the king of Aragon with a hundred men and a hundred thousand Marvetes in gold. The Order of St. James, and other orders of knighthood, who had often accompanied the conqueror of the Moors in his battles, supplied him also with men and money. The city of Barcelona offered him eighty thousand Barcelonese sols, and Majorca fifty thousand silver sols, with two equipped vessels. The fleet, composed of thirty large ships and a great number of smaller craft, in which were embarked 800 men-at-arms and 2,000 foot-soldiers, set out from Barcelona on the 4th of September, 1268. When they arrived off Majorca, the fleet was dispersed by a tempest. One part of the vessels gained the coasts of Asia, another took shelter in the ports of Sardinia. The vessel that the King of Aragon was on board of was cast upon the coast of Languedoc. The arrival at Ptolemais of the Aragonese Crusaders, commanded by a natural son of James, restored some hopes to the Franks of Palestine. An envoy from the king of Aragon, according to the Oriental Chronicles, repaired to the Khan of the Tartars, to announce to him that the Spanish monarch would soon arrive with his army. But whether he was detained by the charms of Berengaria, or whether the tempest that dispersed his fleet made him believe that heaven was averse to his pilgrimage, James did not arrive. His departure, in which he appeared to despise the counsels of the Holy See, had been severely censured and his return, which was attributed to his disgraceful passion, met with an equal share of blame. Murmurs likewise arose against the king of Portugal, who had levied the tenths, but did not leave his kingdom. All those who in Europe took an interest in the crusade had, at this time, their eyes directed toward the kingdom of Naples, where Charles of Anjou was making great preparations to accompany his brother into the east. But this kingdom, recently conquered, was doomed again to be the theater of a war kindled by vengeance and ambition. There fell out in the states of Naples and Sicily, which had so often changed masters, that which almost always takes place after a revolution. Deceived hopes were changed into hatreds, the excesses inseparable from a conquest. The presence of an army proud of its victories, with the too violent government of Charles, animated the people against their new king. Clement the Fourth thought it his duty to give a timely and salutary warning. Your kingdom, he wrote to him, at first exhausted by the agents of your authority, is now torn by your enemies. Thus the caterpillar destroys what has escaped the grasshopper. The kingdom of Sicily and Naples has not been wanting in men to desolate it. Where now are they that will defend it? This letter of the popes announced storms ready to break forth. Many of those who had called Charles to the throne regretted the house of Swabia, and directed their new hopes toward Italy, 
strengthening Conradin, heir of Frederick and of Conrad. This young prince quitted Germany with an army and advanced toward Italy, strengthening himself in his march with the party of the Ghibellines, and with all those whom the domination of Charles had irritated. All Italy was in flames, and the Pope, Charles's protector, retired to Viterbo, had no defense to afford him except only the thunders of the church. Charles of Anjou, however, now assembled his troops and marched out to meet his rival. The two armies met in the plain of St. Valentine, near Aquila. The army of Conradin was cut to pieces, and the young prince fell into the power of the conqueror. Posterity cannot pardon Charles for having abused his victory here so far as to condemn and decapitate his disarmed and vanquished enemy. After this execution, Sicily and the country of Naples were given up to all the furies of a jealous, suspicious tyranny, for violence produces violence, and great political crimes never come alone. It was thus that Charles got ready for the crusade, but, on the other hand, Providence was preparing terrible catastrophes for him. So true it is, says a historian, that God as often gives kingdoms to punish those he elevates as to chastise those whom he brings low. While these bloody scenes were passing in Italy, Louis IX was following up the establishment of public peace and his darling object, the crusade, at the same time. The holy monarch did not forget that the surest manner of softening the evils of war, as well as of his absence, was to make good laws. He therefore issued several ordinances, and each of these ordinances was a monument of his justice. The most celebrated of all is the pragmatic sanction, which Bossuet called the firmest support of Gallican liberties. He also employed himself in elevating that monument of legislation which illustrated his reign and which became a light for following ages. The Count of Poitiers, who was to accompany his brother, was in the meantime engaged in pacifying his provinces and established many regulations for maintaining public order. He, above everything, endeavored to abolish slavery, having for a maxim that men are born free and it is always wise to bring back things to their origin. This good prince drew upon himself the benedictions of his people, and the love of his vassals assured the duration of the laws he made. We have said that Prince Edward, son of Henry III, had taken the oath to combat the infidels. He had recently displayed a brilliant valor in the civil war that had so long desolated England, and the deliverance of his father and the pacification of the kingdom had been the reward of his exploits. It was his esteem for the character of Louis IX, more than the spirit of devotion, that induced him to set out for the East. The King of France, who himself exhorted him to take the cross, lent him seventy livres tournoi for the preparations for his voyage. Edward was to follow Louis as his vassal, and to conduct under his banners the English crusaders, united with those of Guienne. Gaston de Béarn, to whom the French monarch advanced the sum of twenty-five thousand livres, prepared to follow Prince Edward to the Holy Land. The period fixed upon for the departure of the expedition was drawing near. By order of the legate, the cures in every parish had taken the names of the crusaders in order to oblige them to wear the cross publicly, and all had noticed to hold themselves in readiness to embark in the month of May 1270. Louis confided the administration of his kingdom during his absence to Matthew, abbot of St. Denis, and to Simon, Seor de Nelay. He wrote to all the nobles who were to follow him into the Holy Land to recommend them to assemble their knights and men-at-arms. As religious enthusiasm was not sufficiently strong to make men forget their worldly interests, 
Many nobles who had taken the cross entertained great fears of being ruined by the holy war, and most of them hesitated to set out. Louis undertook to pay all the expenses of their voyage, and to maintain them at his own cost during the war, a thing that had not been done in the crusades of Louis the Seventh or Philip Augustus, in which the ardor of the crusaders did not allow them to give a thought to their fortunes or to exercise so much foresight. We have still a valuable monument of this epoch in a charter by which the king of France stipulates how much he is to pay to a great number of barons and knights during the time the war beyond the seas should last. Early in the month of March, Louis repaired to the church of St. Denis, where he received the symbols of the pilgrimage and placed his kingdom under the protection of the apostles of France. Upon the day following this solemn ceremony, a mass for the crusade was celebrated in the church of Notre Dame at Paris. The monarch appeared there, accompanied by his children and the principal nobles of his court. He walked from the palace barefooted, carrying his scrip and staff. The same day he went to sleep at Vincennes and beheld for the last time the spot on which he had enjoyed so much happiness in administering justice to his people. And it was here, too, that he took leave of Queen Marguerite, whom he had never before quitted, a separation rendered so much the more painful by the sorrowful reflection it recalled of past events and by melancholy presentiments for the future. Both the people and the court were affected by the deepest regret, and that which added to the public anxiety was the circumstance that everyone was ignorant of the point to which the expedition was to be directed. The coast of Africa was only vaguely conjectured. The king of Sicily had taken the cross without having the least inclination to embark for Asia, and when the question was discussed in council, he gave it as his opinion that Tunis should be the object of the first attack. The kingdom of Tunis covered the seas with pirates, who infested all the routes to Palestine. It was, besides, the ally of Egypt, and might, if subdued, be made the readiest road to that country. These were the ostensible reasons put forth. The true ones were that it was of importance to the king of Sicily that the coasts of Africa should be brought under European subjection, and that he did not wish to go too far from Italy. The true reason was St. Louis, and that which, no doubt, determined him, was that he believed it possible to convert the king of Tunis, and thus bring a vast kingdom under the Christian banners. The Mussulman prince, whose ambassadors had been several times in France, had himself given birth to this idea, by saying that he asked nothing better than to embrace the religion of Jesus Christ. Thus, that which he had said to turn aside an invasion was precisely the cause of the war being directed against his territories. Louis IX often repeated that he would consent to pass the whole of his life in a dungeon without seeing the sun, if, by such sacrifice, the conversion of the king of Tunis and his nation could be brought about an expression of ardent proselytism that has been blamed with much bitterness, but which only showed an extreme desire to see Africa delivered from barbarism and marching with Europe in the progress of intelligence and civilization, which are the great blessings of Christianity. As Louis traversed his kingdom on his way to Igmort, where the army of the Crusaders was to embark, he was everywhere hailed by the benedictions of his people and gratified by hearing their ardent prayers for the success of his arms. The clergy and the faithful, assembled in the churches, prayed for the king and his children and all that should follow him. They prayed also for foreign princes and nobles who had taken the cross and promised to go into the east, as if they would, by that means, press them to hasten their departure. Very few, however, responded to this religious appeal. 
the king of Castile, who had taken the cross, had pretensions to the imperial crown, nor could he forget the death of his brother Frederick, immolated by Charles of Anjou. It was not only that the affairs of the empire detained the German princes and nobles. The death of young Conradin had so shocked and disgusted men's minds in Germany that no one from that country would have consented to fight under the same banners as the king of Sicily. So black a crime committed amid the preparations for a holy war appeared to presage great calamities. In the height of their grief or indignation, people might fear that heaven would be angry with the Christians and that its curse would fall upon the arms of the crusaders. When Louis arrived at Igmort, he found neither the Genoese fleet nor the principal nobles who were to embark with him. The ambassadors of Paleologus were the only persons who did not cause themselves to be waited for, for a great dread of the crusade was entertained at Constantinople, and this fear was more active than the enthusiasm of the crusaders. Louis might have asked the Greek emperor why, after having promised to send soldiers, he had only sent ambassadors. But Louis, who attached great importance to the conversion of the Greeks, contented himself with removing the apprehensions of the envoys, and, as Clement IV died at that period, he sent them to the conclave of the cardinals to terminate the reunion of the two churches. At length, the unwilling crusaders, stimulated by repeated exhortations and by the example of Louis, set forward on their march from all the provinces, and directed their course toward the ports of Igmort and Marseille. Louis soon welcomed the arrival of the Count of Poitiers with a great number of his vassals. The principal nobles brought with them the most distinguished of their knights and their most brave and hardy soldiers. Many cities likewise contributed their supply of warriors. Each troop had its banner and formed a separate corps, bearing the name of a city or a province. The battalions of Bucar, Carcassonne, Chalon, Perigord, etc., attracted observation in the Christian army. These names, it is true, excited great emulation, but they also gave rise to quarrels, which the wisdom and firmness of Louis had great difficulty in appeasing. Crusaders arrived from Catalonia, Castile, and several other provinces of Spain. Five hundred warriors from Friesland likewise ranged themselves with full confidence under the standard of such a leader as Louis, saying that their nation had always been proud to obey the kings of France. Before he embarked, the king wrote once more to the regents of the kingdom to recommend them to watch carefully over public morals, to deliver France from corrupt judges, and to render to everybody, particularly the poor, prompt and perfect justice, so that he who judges the judgments of men might have nothing to reproach him with. Such were the last farewells that Louis took of France. The fleet set sail on the 4th of July, 1270, and in a few days arrived in the road of Cagliari. Here the council of the counts and barons was assembled in the king's vessel to deliberate upon the plan of the crusade. Those who advocated the conquest of Tunis said that by that means the passages of the Mediterranean would be opened and the power of the Mamelukes would be weakened, and that after that conquest the army would go triumphantly into either Egypt or Palestine. Many of the barons were not of this opinion. They said that, if the Holy Land stood in need of prompt assistance, they ought to afford it without delay. While they were engaged on the coast of Africa, in a country with which they were unacquainted, the Christian cities of Syria might all fall into the hands of the Saracens. The most redoubtable enemy of the Christians was Bybars, the terrible sultan of Cairo. It was him they ought first to attack. It was into his states, into the bosom of his capital, that the war should be carried, 
and not to a place two hundred leagues from Egypt. They added to this remembrances of the defeats that ought to be avenged upon the very theater of so many disasters. Contemporary history does not say to what extent Louis was struck with the wisdom of these last opinions, but the expedition to Tunis flattered his most cherished hopes. It had been proposed by the king of Sicily, whose concurrence was necessary to the success of the crusade. It was, therefore, decided that the Genoese fleet should direct its course toward Africa, and two days after, on the 20th of July, it arrived in sight of Tunis and Carthage. At the sight of the Christian fleet, the inhabitants of the coast of Africa were seized with terror, and all who were upon the Carthage shore took flight toward the mountains or toward Tunis. Some vessels that were in the port were abandoned by their crews. The king ordered Florent de Varenne, who performed the functions of admiral, to get into a boat and reconnoiter the coast. Varenne found nobody in the port or upon the shore. He sent word to the king that there was no time to be lost. He must take immediate advantage of the consternation of the enemy. But it was remembered that in the preceding expedition, the descent upon the coast of Egypt had been too precipitate. In this it was determined to risk nothing. Inexperienced youth had presided over the former war. Now it was directed by old age and ripe manhood, and it was resolved to wait till the morrow. The next day at dawn, the coast appeared covered with Saracens, among whom were many men on horseback. The crusaders, nevertheless, commenced their preparations for landing. At the approach of the Christians, the multitude of infidels disappeared, which, according to the account of an eyewitness, was a blessing from heaven, for the disorder was so great that a hundred men would have been sufficient to stop the disembarkation of the whole army. When the Christian army had landed, it was drawn up in order of battle upon the shore, and, in accordance with the laws of war, Pierre de Condé, almoner to the king, read with a loud voice a proclamation by which the conquerors took possession of the territory. This proclamation, which Louis had drawn up himself, began by these words, I proclaim, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of Louis, King of France, his sergeant, etc., the baggage, provisions, and munitions of war were landed, a vast space was marked out, and the Christian soldiers pitched their tents. While they were digging ditches and raising entrenchments to protect the army from a surprise, they took possession of the tower built on the point of the cape, and on the following day five hundred sailors planted the standard of the lilies upon the castle of Carthage. The village of Marsa, which was close to the castle, fell likewise into the hands of the crusaders. The women and the sick were placed here, while the army remained beneath their tents. Louis still hoped for the conversion of the king of Tunis, but this pious illusion was very quickly dissolved. The Mussulman prince sent messengers to the king to inform him that he would come and meet him at the head of a hundred thousand men, and would require baptism of him on the field of battle. The Moorish king added that he had caused all the Christians in his dominions to be seized, and that every one of them should be massacred if the Christian army presumed to insult his capital. The menaces and vain bravados of the Prince of Tunis effected no change in the plans of the crusade. The Moors, besides, inspired no fear, and they themselves could not conceal the terror which the sight only of the Christians created in them. Not daring to face their enemy, their scattered bands sometimes hovered around the Christian army, seeking to surprise any stragglers from the camp and at others, uniting together, they poured down toward the advanced posts, launched a few arrows, showed their naked swords, 
and then depended upon the swiftness of their horses to secure them from the pursuit of the Christians. They not unfrequently had recourse to treachery. Three hundred of them came into the camp of the crusaders and said they wished to embrace the Christian faith, and a hundred more followed them, announcing the same intention. After being received with open arms, they waited for what they deemed a favorable opportunity, and fell upon a body of the Christians, sword in hand. But being overwhelmed by numbers, most of them were killed, and the rest were allowed to escape. Three of the principals fell on their knees and implored the compassion of their leaders. The contempt the Franks had for such enemies obtained their pardon, and they were driven out of the camp. At length, the Mussulman army, now emboldened by the inaction of the Christians, presented itself several times on the plain. Nothing would have been more easy than to attack and conquer it, but Louis had resolved to act upon the defensive and to await the arrival of the King of Sicily before beginning the war, a fatal resolution which ruined everything. The Sicilian monarch, who had advised this ill-starred expedition, was destined to complete, by his delays, the evil he had begun by his counsels. The Muslims flocked from all parts of Africa to defend the cause of Islamism against the Christians. Preparations were carried on in Egypt to meet the invasion of the Franks, and in the month of August, Baibars announced by messengers that he was about to march to the assistance of Tunis. The troops which the Sultan of Cairo maintained in the province of Barca received orders to set forward. Thus the Moorish army was about to become formidable, but it was not this host of Saracens that the Crusaders had most to dread. Other dangers, other misfortunes, threatened them. The Christian army wanted water. They had none but salted provisions. The soldiers could not endure the climate of Africa. Winds constantly prevailed, which, coming from the torrid zone, appeared to the Europeans to be the breath of a devouring fire. The Saracens upon the neighboring mountains raised the sand with certain instruments made for the purpose, and the dust was carried by the wind in burning clouds down upon the plain upon which the Christians were encamped. At last, dysentery, that fatal malady of warm climates, began to commit frightful ravages among the troops, and the plague, which appears to be born of itself upon this burning, arid sand, spread its dire contagion through the Christian army. They were obliged to be under arms night and day, not to defend themselves from an enemy that always fled away from them, but to guard against surprise. A vast number of the crusaders sunk under fatigue, famine, and disease. It became impossible to bury the dead. The ditches of the camp were filled with carcasses, thrown in in heaps, which added to the corruption of the air and to the spectacle of the general desolation. In spite of his sufferings, in spite of his griefs, Louis the Ninth was constantly engaged in endeavors to alleviate the situation of his army. He gave orders as long as he had any strength left, dividing his time between the duties of a Christian and those of a monarch. The fever, however, increased. No longer able to attend either to his cares for the army or to exercises of piety, he ordered the cross to be placed before him, and, stretching out his hands, he in silence implored him who had suffered for all men. The whole army was in a state of mourning. The soldiers walked about in tears, demanding of heaven the preservation of so good a prince. Amid the general grief, Louis turned his thoughts toward the accomplishment of the divine laws and the destinies of France. Philip, who was his successor to the throne, was in his tent. He desired him to approach his bed, and in a faltering voice gave him counsels in what manner he should govern the kingdom of his fathers. 
The instructions he gave him comprise the most noble maxims of religion and loyalty, and that which will render them forever worthy of the respect of posterity is that they had the authority of his example and only recalled the virtues of his own life. End of section 29.